I want to welcome you uh, this morning to Alliance. Thank you for choosing to worship uh, with us on this Sunday before uh, Christmas. Just a couple of weeks ago, YouVersion released the most popular verse of 2019. You, you likely know YouVersion. You may have it on your phone, um, as do I. It is an app. Did I say app? Congratulations. 13 and 1 Sunbelt champions. RNL Carriers, New Orleans Bowl winner yet again. Pretty exciting. But this one is an app that, can, uh, that you can use to read the Bible wherever you are. Get a verse of the day, look up verses in, the, in one of the 2,000 versions in 1,350 languages. I usually select English. There are, all, there are currently over 400 million users of version worldwide. Anyway, the most popular verse for this year, determined by the number of times it was accessed, shared, or highlighted, was Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Great verse. Now, you can go back for several years, both on version and another popular app called um, Bible Gateway. They'll even uh, list the top ten verses, and it varies from year to year, year to year and from app to app, but always near the top is John 3.16. If you don't see it on your Bible app, you can go to various sporting events. Did I say sporting events? <laughs> various sporting events in the end zones where we were several times yesterday, behind backstops or basketball goals. I guess the thought of positioning the verse before a national audience, I suppose, is people can become Christians by reading John 3.16. Now, we all know the verse. It's one of the first we ever uh, memorized, arguably the most well-known verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him um, shall not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. Google John 3.16 and you will get over 121 million hits. The In-N-Out Burger um, chain um, out, out west prints the reference on the bottom of all of their cups and their french fry wrappers, I guess in hopes that those partaking would become Christians. Martin Luther called it the gospel in miniature. I would suggest further on this Sunday before Christmas that this verse contains the very essence of Christmas. For God so loved that He gave with one rather significant difference. You see, we buy gifts for people we love or even like who we think um, deserve the gifts, right? Sons, daughters, uh, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, uh, etc. Those who deserve it. After all, the song says, Santa is keeping that list and checking it twice and going to find out who's naughty or nice. Sit on the, uh, one of the ubiquitous Santa laps, and he will invariably ask, have you been good this year? Implication being, if you haven't, call for you. And so, we perpetuate that. We tell our children, if you are good, and they try really hard, at least in the month of December, led to believe that if you are good, you will receive good gifts. 
If not, not. I'm going to suggest this morning that the verse of John 3.16, the Christmas verse of John 3.16, in its context, actually says the opposite, that God gave when we did not deserve it. It's not like we made God's good list and, got, and therefore get good stuff. The opposite is actually true. We made His bad list, and yet He loved us anyway. It's amazing. This is the fourth Sunday of Advent, has been, as has been referenced, love. And, and love is seen in no greater way than in John 3.16, especially when viewed within its context. When wrenched from the context, it declares God's great love without the undeserved nature of it. In fact, I would suggest that it actually profanes the gift, as if we get it because we somehow deserve it. You see, God gave His Son on Christmas, but here's the question, why? Why? Well, it was His love, but why did we need Him? I mean, when you're buying gifts, don't you try to figure out what the person for whom you're buying wants or, or needs? Why did we need this first Christmas gift? Further, again, did we earn the gift? Is it because we were good and, and like Santa's list, we made the good list and not the naughty list? Most of us know. The truth is, if we got what we deserved, it would be a bag of coal, perhaps to fuel the fires of hell. You see, Christmas has been hijacked to, to, to make it the giving of gifts to those who somehow deserve it. And again, the true meaning of Christmas is quite the opposite. I can't help but think screw tape is quite pleased with Wormwood's success with turning Christmas on its head. Again, John 3.16, even John 3.16 has a context. That's why it's 3.16. implies there are two chapters and 15 verses before it and some 20 verses after it, and it's actually found in the context of a book with 21 chapters. It actually comes on the heels of a conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. That's why John 3.16 begins with the word for. It sets a very important, indispensable uh, context. A, a conversation where Jesus declared that Nicodemus himself needed to be born again. Yes, even you, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, the teacher of Israel, even you need to be born again. Why? Why, why did Nicodemus need that, verses 18 and following? Because Nicodemus, and in fact every person who has ever lived or will ever, ever live, is in need of that great gift of John 3.16, the gift of God's Son because of His unrequited love. It's not as if God loved us because we loved Him. Him, His love was unrequited. Here's the truth. We're already judged. We're, we're already condemned because we've all broken God's law and stand in need of a Savior. Enter Jesus 
and John 3.16. It's great news with the backdrop of some rather dark news. Let's look at the verse in its context this morning. Uh, John chapter 3, verses 16 to verse 21 say this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Those two verses are great news. He who believes in Him is not judged. Great news. And he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love, love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and chapter 1 told us the light is Jesus, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. I've only preached John 3.16 in its context once before. I've used it, but, but, but typically just quoting the one verse. And yet when we look at it in its context, it's consistent with the rest of Scripture. God, yes, does love the world. And again, that love stands in stark contrast to a very, very bleak background. You see, the world has a great need. It stands condemned. Therefore, because of His great love, God sent His Son, His one and only unique Son on Christmas to redeem the world. He gave us a Son, ultimately on a cross, so that through His death and resurrection and our subsequent faith, we could be born again and have eternal life. This is an incredible gift. I know it's familiar. I know it's the, perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible, but it is incredible. It is amazing when considered in its context. Let me give you the outline as we jump into it, the remedy for the world, because we needed one. Point two tells us the world's need for the remedy. And let me just say, since we have kids here this morning, if you have a red-letter edition Bible, uh, the verses that we just read, or perhaps you looked at in your Bible, are likely printed in red ink. As you may know, the letters in red in the New Testament are theoretically the, the words of Jesus. You see, there were no quotation marks when John wrote his gospel, and he didn't switch to a red pen either. And therefore, all of those red letters are just good guesses. And, and so it is guessed Jesus said these things at the end of his conversation with Nicodemus. While that is possible, most today believe that those verses um, are actually a commentary by John on Jesus' conversation. In other words, most believe today that they should not be in red. I tend to think that's correct. So why do I make a big deal about that? Because it gives me the opportunity to remind us of something very, very important. This is the Word of God, all of it, every word, whether it's in red or in, in black. We believe in the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture as originally written, meaning God inspired every single word without error, such that when John wrote, as he wrote John chapter 3, or Paul, or Peter, or any of the other 35 or so authors who wrote, every word inspired just as God wanted it, which means it is totally trustworthy and without error. 
And every word in here is important, not just the red letters. Now, I suppose there's no harm in paying special attention to those um, words, but even as I suggested that the most popular verse uh, in the Bible today was one verse, there's actually 31,000 really good verses because they all come from God. So again, what we have here, I believe, are John's thoughts on what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Jesus had just told Nick, not Saint Nick, he won't be Saint Nick until the end of John's gospel when he goes with Joseph of Arimathea to bury Jesus, you see. So he tells Nick that everyone must be born again if they want to see the kingdom of God. doesn't matter who you are. Jew, Gentile, man, woman, teacher, uh, learner, ruler, follower, blue-collar, white-collar, American, Middle Eastern, Asian, African. It does not matter. Everyone must look to the Son and believe that He was lifted up from the earth, verse 14 tells us. Now, why did God send His Son on that first Christmas? You say, because, well, because He loved the world. That's true. Look at verses 16 and 17. So we see the remedy for what we will find is our sinful condemned position. For God so loved the world. That tells us why God did what He did. Remember the word for kicks us back to the two verses before, verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, you may remember that story, that the Israelites had been disobedient and God sent venomous snakes in among them. And the only way that they could be healed from the venomous snake bites was to put a bronze snake on a pole and lift it up. It was a future picture of Jesus. And if they looked to the bronze serpent, they would be healed. So also, even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Four. God so loved the world. Now, the word so in verse 16 does not speak of degree but of manner. It's a little technical, but hang with me. The word is used uh, many times in John's gospel and never means degree. It always means manner, which means we don't actually read the verse this way. For God loved the world so much that He gave a son. You see, that's a degree. Rather, we should read it this way, for so God loved the world. In this manner, God loved the world. How did He prove it? He gave us His Son. It's a minor difference, no great theological differences, uh, but it's important because that's what the author meant when he wrote it. This is how we know that God loved the world. He gave His Son. You saw it. It places the emphasis on the giving of the Son. That's why it's important. Can you believe it? He proved His love for us by giving us His Son. It's an amazing, incomprehensible truth. It's really indescribable, which is why Paul will later say in 2 Corinthians 9, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. What can I say to describe it? You see, this Wednesday, not Tuesday, that's Christmas Eve. Everyone knows that Jesus was born on Wednesday. So this Wednesday, you'll open gifts, and some will be really cool. But you'll be able to say, I, I, I got an iPhone 11. 
and everyone will know what that is. Or, um, I, I got the Frozen 2 movie. Sorry. And that is all that you will need to be able to describe it. Even if you get a gift from Neiman Marcus's Christmas catalog, you'll be able to describe it in a sentence or two. But God's gift on Christmas? Indescribable. That's why it took 31,000 verses to talk about it. It's amazing. I'll make a feeble attempt to plumb some of the depths of these indescribable truths. I, I want to be clear, I cannot use words or adjectives big enough to proclaim this indescribable truth. There's so much we need to see. For so, in this way, God loved the world. Stop there. The world is the word cosmos of its almost 200 uses in the New Testament. It always, almost always, is used in connection with the sinful condition of the world, the evil world system. In other words, we're not talking about the physical planet, all right? Global warming and all of that. It's not it's saying here that God loved the planet Earth. This is not a biblical basis for loving your mother Earth. Rather, John tells us God loved this sinful world. That's amazing. Because when we talk about a sinful world, what was lovable about it? It means that God's love for the world is to be admired, not so much because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. That's why we admire His love. We start with that word agape. It's the word for love, which speaks of a self-sacrificing kind of love, that is true to be sure, for this love caused God to give His only begotten Son, His most precious possession. For us, love is found in the loveliness, typically love is found in the loveliness of the object loved, right? Say we love a movie because it was really good. It kept our attention. It's full of action or adventure, love or romance. We love a meal because, man, it really hit the spot. It really tasted good. It was amazing. Again, for most of us, that's why we buy special gifts for that, those special someones at Christmas, because we love them. We love something because there's something lovable about them. The truth is, if we were honest, for most of us, our love is conditional which is why we keep the list, you see, so that you can earn it. It's conditional. For example, when we fall in love and eventually marry someone, it's because we find something lovable about the other person. There's something that, that causes us to say, will you marry me, and something that causes uh, us to reply, yes. I mean, let's be honest, not many of us found the most unattractive, most unlovable, most undesirable person on the planet and said, will you be my bride? And yet, there is a sense in which that is exactly what God did. He sent His Son to die for and receive a bride from among the most undesirable of His creation because God loved the world. That is amazing. 
He would have been perfectly just and holy, reasonable and right to send a whole lot of us to eternal punishment. It is, after all, what we deserved, but He loved us. Can you explain that? If you do not hear anything else today, hear these words, God loves you. Paul says it's indescribable. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us, sent His Son for us. We were by nature objects of wrath, but God made us alive in Christ because of His great love for us. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters. God demonstrates His lo own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, that is unlovable, <laughs> God died for us, or Christ died for us. Here, here's another one. I like this one, Titus 3. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. In other words, not on the basis of anything lovely that we had to uh, offer but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the, uh, by the Holy Spirit. The idea of redemption, I, I said earlier that he, he sent His Son to redeem the world. The idea of redemption is paying a price for a slave, to, 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 to buy us back from the slave market of sin incredibly to be His bride. A bride price was paid. And it was a very high price indeed. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The word only begotten is monogenes. It means one and only. It means unique. It means there is no other. There was only one. God gave all He had to give, namely His only unique Son. That's how He proved His love. For so God loved the world. Romans 8 says it this way, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up or delivered Him up for us all. That is an indescribable gift. Again, notice God loved the world, meaning His love for humankind is without distinction. It just loves the world. It is not race or ethnic or gender or even nationality specific. God's grace was not for a specific people group. It is for who? Everyone who believes. Even in the Abrahamic covenant given to the father of the Jewish nation, God made it clear, through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. His love and consequent grace are not, again, race and national origin specific. They are not age and gender specific. I love this one. They are not even sinner-specific. <laughs> Some of you need to hear that. He loves sinners. Not some sinners and not other… No, He loves sinners without distinction. He loves sinners and desires to save them. Look at verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved. That's the purpose through Him, that is through Jesus. His purpose is to save us. This is the gift He came to bring. Notice Jesus was not sent to judge the world, which can be a little bit confusing because there are other verses, chapter 5, for example, which says, for not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Chapter 9, for example, clearly says, for judgment I came into the world. So did He come to judge or not? The simple explanation is this. Jesus came the first time to seek and save the lost. 
He did not come to judge or condemn the world. In fact, we'll see in a moment, the world already stands condemned. The very fact that we needed salvation, that we needed this gift, implies judgment for those who do not have the Son. So, He will pass judgment. He will. We, talk, we celebrate Advent to remember His first coming and look forward to His second. His first coming, He came to seek and to save the lost. Are you listening to me? He came to, he came to seek and save you. But the second time, He will pass judgment and consequent condemnation on those who reject Him in the future. His first coming was to give His life as a ransom for many that we might be saved. Might be saved. We should not think salvation is universal and that everyone is saved because Jesus came. Everyone can celebrate Christmas. In fact, some two billion will. But the truth of Christmas alone does not save. No, we need to believe and trust the truth of Easter that Jesus died and rose again that we might be saved. Verses 18 to 21 make it clear this is what we needed. Again, these verses are John's commentary, John's way of saying this is what Jesus was saying. You must be born again. You must believe Jesus is who he said he was and that he accomplished what he came to do, namely be lifted up on the cross so that all who believe in him can have eternal life. This is a free gift. Second part of verse 16, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. To believe is to have eternal life, and to not believe, to reject, is to remain in your already condemned state and to perish. No third option. No, no second chances, no reincarnation. It's have Christ or not. To have eternal life is to know God through His Son. That's why He came, to be in relationship with Him such that you can experience the blessings that flow from that relationship both now and in the life to come. To reject Christ, conversely, is to not be in relationship with God and to not enjoy the blessings uh, that He wants to give both now and in the life to come. I find it interesting that many today try to erase this kind of truth because it seems offensive, right? Try hard not to offend people with the gospel. This perishing is so negative. Those who have Jesus will not perish, which implies that those who don't will perish. He goes on to say, we see these kinds of man-on-the-street interviews where people are asked things like, what, what do you think about Christians? Or Christians think you need to be saved. Do you feel lost? And when the man or woman on the street rails against Christians saying things like, I'm really offended when someone tries to convert me, or I'm really offended when they tell me I'm a sinner, or I don't feel lost, or I feel like I was born right the first time, or any number of things. The result has been then to remove the offense of the gospel. Let's not tell people they're sinners. Let's just give them John 3.16 without context. See what I'm saying? God loves you. Loved them so much, he sent his son for them. Here's a question. Why? Why did he send Jesus? Well, to, to die for them. Why? To be in relationship with them. But, but, but fine, why did Jesus have to die for me to be in relationship with God? Because we stand condemned. It's true that most people in the world don't 
generally like that part of the message. We shouldn't expect them to think that that part is fun. Paul said the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Dragged Paul out of the city, stoned him, left him for dead. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. They, they ended up crucifying him. If you'd done the man on the street interviews back then, I don't think there would have been too many good things said about Jesus or Paul. So, we're told to try not to offend people, but if we do that, we ignore the f- truth. Listen to me very carefully. The gospel is called a rock of offense. It's a rock of offense. We're not trying to win a popularity contest, but we are telling them, listen, so important. We are telling them because of Advent love. We are telling them because we love them. It's interesting today, so many think of Christians as judgmental and bigots and even hateful. Christians are hateful, right? Because we don't accept everyone's lifestyle. It's not true that we are hateful. We share because we love them. To not share the remedy for their sinful condition is the true definition of hatred. Point is, there is a remedy. John 3.16, there's a need for the remedy. If you don't believe in the name of the one and only Son, you will remain condemned, unforgiven, and perish. Offensive? Yes. True? Yes. To perish means to be cast into eternal conscious torment. It means eternal separation from God. It means to pay for your own sins forever. I don't want you to do that. You don't want to either. God's made a way for your brokenness, for the fact that you've broken His law and that you stand condemned. Everyone is condemned. The only remedy is to believe in Jesus. Once again, we see the exclusivity of Christ. The only way to know God is through His Son, Jesus. So again, we have lots of people, and perhaps you are some of them, who will celebrate Christmas because it's so non-threatening. It's okay to celebrate a baby in a manger, but here's the truth. Jesus did not stay a baby. He lived a perfect life, which was also necessary. It's why He came as a baby, so that He could live the perfect life that we did not live, keeping all of the law, and then He could take our sins in His body on the cross so that we could go from a position of being condemned judged and condemned to forgiven, cleansed, and in right relationship with God. It's the meaning of Christmas. And I, I want that for you more than anything.